Half Price Horror. Hello, and welcome to Half Price Horror, where we get our terror at a discount and pass the savings on to you. Half Price Horror is a spoiler-heavy podcast that takes a deep dive into scary movies curated by the selection at the local Half Price bookstore. I'm your host, John, and today we'll be taking a look at The Being from 1983, although it was completed in 1981, as with many low-budget horror movies it spent some time looking for a distributor. Written and directed by Jackie Kong. This is actually Kong's debut as a writer and a director. Her family moved from Hanford, California to Hollywood when she was 16 so her mother could pursue a career as an actor, and she wound up with a number of social connections in the industry. According to her biography, at least, she got her first movie camera from Marlon Brando, and she wound up marrying young to notorious film producer Bill Osco, who was at the time best known for his films Flesh Gordon, not Flash, but Flesh, and his X-rated reinterpretation of Alice in Wonderland. But Osco gave Kong the support she needed to make her own opportunities as a filmmaker, a rarity for Asian American women of the time, and Kong took to her work with gusto. She made four movies, Blood Diner, probably her biggest hit, is one I'd love to tackle on the podcast someday, and is still active as a comic book author and an advocate for Asian Americans in film. The film stars Rex Coltrane, uh, I mean, Johnny Commander, uh, oh, let's just get it out of the way. It's producer Bill Osco appearing as male lead Mortimer Lutz, although for reasons that will soon become obvious, he does not get top billing. Osco acted under a pseudonym for this film, probably because movies where the cast double as crew tend to be seen as amateur efforts, and he didn't want his step up into quote-unquote respectable filmmaking to have that stigma attached to it. This... This podcast has no problem with pornography, but some people do see it as a profession lacking respectability, and he may have felt that stigma. But they had a little trouble keeping his stage name straight, and he's given a different name in the opening credits than he does in the closing crawl. I love that kind of mistake, though. It's like seeing the sculptor's thumb on a clay pot, a reminder that this was made by human hands and bears the imprint of its creator. Appearing as the female lead, Lori, is Marianne Gordon, who again is overshadowed by some of the more famous names here. Gordon, who was at the time married to country music legend Kenny Rogers, appeared with him in several of the gambler made-for-TV movies as well as Coward of the County. But that wasn't her only claim to fame. She was also on 43 episodes of the deep-fried sketch comedy show Hee Haw, which, for those of you who aren't familiar with its 26 season run, leans hard on country bumpkin stereotypes for its jokes, and was seen as a result as a more quote-unquote wholesome alternative to shows like Saturday Night Live or Rowan and Martin's Laughing. Anyone who is familiar with the show understands why I put the quotes around wholesome. Appearing as smarmy scientist Garson Jones and getting top billing despite his clear role as foil for the more heroic Mortimer is industry legend Martin Landau. Apparently, Kong pretended to be an actor interested in taking his workshop to get him a copy of the script, and her audacity and determination impressed him. I feel like audacity and determination are kind of the defining characteristics of Jackie Kong. Landau acted from the 1950s, when he did a number of television western roles in shows like Maverick and Rawhide, all the way up through his death in 2017. 
Along the way, he took on regular roles in genre shows like Mission Impossible and Space 1999, appeared in horror movies like Alone in the Dark and Without Warning, and famously lent his gravitas to the part of Bela Lugosi in Tim Burton's biopic of Ed Wood. He was always a pleasure to watch, and I hope to see him again on this podcast. And speaking of famous performers who punched way above their weight by appearing in a low-budget indie horror movie, Puerto Rican actor Jose Ferrer won an Academy Award for his title performance as Cyrano de Bergerac in 1950. He also showed up in the original Moulin Rouge as Toulouse-Lautrec, in The Cane Mutiny as Lieutenant Greenwald, and in Lawrence of Arabia as Turkish Bey. But problems with the IRS forced him to keep very busy indeed, so he also appeared in Dracula's Dog, The Swarm, Exoman, Bloody Birthday, Battle Creek Brawl, which was the American film debut of Jackie Chan, and this movie where he plays Greedy Mayor Lane. And he was also in David Lynch's Dune, a personal favorite of mine. His son, Miguel Ferrer, has a very impressive career of his own that we might hopefully get to someday. The mayor's wife, Virginia, is played by Ruth Buzzy, and I'm so sorry to the people who had Ruth Buzzy in their last fan-standing pool of actors I was never going to talk about on this podcast, because you just lost your bet. Buzzy is, of course, a famous and prolific comedian who came to national prominence on Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In, where she appeared for 135 episodes and gained instant recognition due to both her distinctive facial features. Once you've seen her wide mouth and prominent chin, you'll be able to pick her out of any crowd scene. And for her magnificent comic timing and ability to make frustration funny. She's been working regularly ever since with a metric ton of voice work and years of appearances on Sesame Street, and I was going to say but this is the only horror movie she ever did, when I looked at her IMDb page and realized she's actually in another movie I have sitting on my shelf waiting to be watched. So look for her in My Mom's a Werewolf when we eventually get to that. There are two other big names Kong scored for this movie. Uh, Dorothy Malone, who plays Marge Smith, was better known as a minor sex symbol in the 50s with films like Scared Stiff with Jerry Lewis. She was also in Basic Instinct, and she can be seen in the relatively recent Netflix MST3K episode The Daytime Ended. And Kinky Friedman, who's the voice of the radio DJ, is an infamous singer, songwriter, author, and provocateur who ran for governor of Texas twice. I said what? out loud at least two times during the opening credits of this film. Which begins, as we get fully into it after those opening credits have played, with the aforementioned Kinky Friedman narrating the airwaves over a shot of Main Street in a small Idaho town called Pottsville. You can see some protesters out on the street, about which we'll hear more later, as Kinky, his character's name is Willis, but he might as well just be Kinky Friedman, tells listeners that the big storm they had earlier has finally blown through, and they're hoping for better weather on Easter Sunday. Then, as we cut to ominous storm clouds that belie Kinky's reassurances, we get a second voiceover, this time of a stentorian narrator saying, In the distance, the town of Pottsville, Idaho. A small town. Not much different from any other Main Street USA. Strange and unexplained events are occurring. Some people are missing. Among them, a little child. The ultimate terror has taken form. And Pottsville, Idaho will never be the same. 
And I feel like this is one of those places where you can see a little of Kong's inexperience peeking through. Really, this narration doesn't convey anything that we haven't already seen ourselves in the previous scene, or that we're not going to find out later as the movie progresses. It's also more than a little distracting and melodramatic, and it doesn't get used elsewhere so it feels a tiny bit incongruous in light of later events. I will freely admit it's got a certain cheesy charm, big melodramatic voiceovers in low-budget horror movies always do, but it's not actually necessary. As it concludes, we see a teenager, not the missing child from the narration, another reason why this is confusing, fleeing the site of a nuclear waste dump with the urgency of someone who's afraid for his life. He makes it out of the nuclear dump and back to a car parked in the middle of a junkyard, and manages to both start it and drive it away, but something jumps onto the roof and bursts a single massive fist into the cabin. It's red and glistening as though whatever's up there has been skinned alive, and it has huge, razor-sharp claws. Within moments, it tears the young man's head clean off his shoulders. Weirdly, the kid looks a lot like Gaten Matarazzo from Stranger Things, which is pure coincidence, but is very distracting every time Kong cuts to a close-up, and the car goes careening out of control into a pallet of potatoes near a local agricultural depot, because Idaho. We then jump ahead a little to police deputy Dudley, played by Kent Perkins, Ruth Buzzy's real-life husband, taking stock of the accident. The body is gone, and with no plates or tabs on the vehicle, they need to take it to a mechanic to get the VIN number off the engine block. Mortimer Lutz, who everyone defers to as though he's a senior officer, goes along with the car, but gets called away by some paperwork, leaving the mechanic alone with the vehicle. As he pauses for a cigarette near the trunk, it pops open, and moments later, Mort returns to find the man missing. He doesn't seem to think much about it, though, nor about the weird green slime that coats the interior of the car. In fairness, if I saw green liquid all over a car, I'd assume it was either antifreeze or transmission fluid. That said, Mort seems to be very often indifferent to his duties in this film, and it feels like Osco is channeling Dallas from Alien. Certainly his wardrobe, which is in no way reflective of his role as a police officer, he doesn't even have a badge, looks like the one Tom Skerritt wore in that movie. The hair and beard style also match. Mort leaves not even noticing that the film is now on its second murder. Meanwhile, a young man named Bobby picks up his girlfriend for a trip to the drive-in. More on that later, because at the risk of sounding a little bit critical, the word meanwhile does a lot of heavy lifting in this movie. It jumps back and forth between several plot threads at once, several smaller scenes, pops over to random monster attacks, jumps over to fake-out scares, and just generally shifts narratives very quickly and without warning. Because we then cut to Dudley, bringing in a Latino man he caught fishing without a license. Dudley makes a number of incredibly racist comments and slurs in the course of his arrest, which is depressingly believable, but also eye-poppingly offensive, and leaves him sitting in front of the TV at the station while he processes the paperwork for the arrest. It's clear that the real purpose of the scene is to get us in front of the TV set, where scientist Garson Jones is condescendingly explaining to a news interviewer that the nuclear waste dumped into the area aquifer actually has no harmful effects, and doesn't contaminate the water with any more radiation than that produced by a watch or a radio. He even drinks a sip to demonstrate how safe it is, a stunt that auto industry representatives used to perform with lead fuel additives. They knew it was incredibly dangerous to have more than a small amount, but as a one-time stunt it was safe and highly persuasive. 
Obviously, there's a lot of social commentary going on here. This was made in 1981, when Ronald Reagan had only just taken office as president and was making it his mission to dismantle the Environmental Protection Agency his Republican predecessor Richard Nixon had created. Anne Garush, who was head of the EPA under Reagan, resigned between the time this movie was made and its release after being cited for contempt of Congress for her refusal to cooperate with a probe into mismanagement of the agency's pollution cleanup fund known as the Superfund. Basically, every single person in the country at this time had as a top concern the uncomfortable awareness that the people in charge of reducing pollution in America didn't care if our rivers caught fire. And that's not an exaggeration. That literally happened in Ohio before the EPA came along. Cutting back to the drive-in, we see the ticket taker checking Bobby's trunk for stowaways, and there's a fake-out scare, the first probably too many, that leads us to suspect that possibly the monster simply teleports from one car trunk to another and is about to snatch him too. But everything's fine, and the teens go in and watch the movie within the movie, which stars an uncredited Robin Still, aka Val from Slumber Party Massacre, as a nude woman painting her toenails when she's attacked by a monster. Everyone's so distracted by the screams coming from the screen, or, in the case of Bobby and his date, by each other, that they don't notice the actual monster tumbling up to kill Bobby, his girlfriend, and a stoner who rolls down his window to investigate what he thinks is a weird guy in a monster suit. There's a very creepy, if somewhat bizarre, moment in all this where green fluid leaks out of the radio and glove compartment of one of the cars just before the monster strikes. It's almost like the creature is manifesting its green goo-like ectoplasm rather than excreting it, which is a striking visual even if it doesn't really make a ton of sense. And then we cut to the local diner, where Mort is having a bite to eat and flirting with waitresses Jenny and Lori. Jenny is played by Ellen Blake, who made a career out of playing this kind of sassy, brassy woman in things like The Last Starfighter, Wyatt Earp, and Cannery Row. Afterward, he heads to his car, while giving us a weird little voiceover internal monologue about his concerns about what's happening in town that happens just often enough in this movie to be distracting as heck, but not often enough to be a valid recurring narrative device. He hears some sort of weird growling noise from the backseat, but it turns out to be just another fake-out. The town drunk has apparently climbed into his car and dozed off, and Mort kicks him out before going to investigate the disappearances at the drive-in. He takes a report from the stoner's friend, who has to be nervous as hell talking to a cop while he's high as a kite like that, and investigates the other empty car. It's also covered with green slime, which he gets all over his pants in an unconvincingly staged scene. Osco very ostentatiously refuses to look at the place he's about to sit down in, and there's a conspicuous hole next to it that looks something like a massive gopher tunnel. But Mort wouldn't be Mort if he actually investigated further. He instead heads home, presumably stopping to change along the way. Seriously, his clothes just become absolutely pristine. It's an obvious and kind of amusing continuity error. And he tosses his gun on a chair before pulling aside his bedspread to reveal a bed coated in... Bum, bum, bum. Slime! A claw swipes out from under the bed, and he narrowly escapes the house and the subsequent pursuit by crossing the train tracks just seconds before an express train barrels through almost certainly made to look closer than it is by forced perspective, but still a very risky and impressive stunt. The next morning, DJ Kinky Friedman reports a beautiful Easter Sunday, and we see the mayor's wife Virginia organizing the Easter egg hunt. Poor little Susie, who's barely more than a toddler, 
she's played by Kong and Asuka's daughter Roxanne, keeps getting her eggs snatched away by older, faster kids. But she finds one in a gopher hole, right next to a large monster who thankfully doesn't seem inclined to pursue her into the bright light of day. And wouldn't you know it, it's the grand prize-winning egg! Bonus points to Kong for dubbing in a disappointed kid's aw shit in response to the announcement. It's a very genuine touch of child behavior. Over at the local, um, potato factory? Look, it's a big building with a lot of machinery. I'm not entirely clear how this works. Mayor Lane is arguing with Mort over the need to investigate the disappearances and the monster Mort swears he saw. The mayor doesn't want to disrupt their lucrative potato industry with a contamination scare because political figure who cares more about keeping the capitalist machine going than he does about human life has become downright obligatory in this kind of movie ever since 1975's Jaws. But he does agree to a quiet, low-key investigation and brings in Garson Jones to study the situation. Jones is also there to orchestrate a cover-up, and god, he's just so oily and unctuous and awful, even when he's ostensibly there to help? Landau very clearly understood the assignment, and if he's embarrassed by being in a low-budget horror movie from a first-time director, you'd never know it from his performance. He is giving it his all here, as is Ferrer, as is Buzzy, as are pretty much all the big names in this movie. It's kind of a shame they have to act opposite Osco, who plays his part with a kind of leaden indifference that sucks the energy out of every scene he's in. If they could have given this same role to someone like Tom Atkins or a young Bruce Campbell, I think this movie would be a lot more fondly remembered. Mort heads back into town and bumps into the mayor's wife again, who's leading a moral majority-style campaign to get rid of pornography in Pottsville. There doesn't appear to actually be any pornography in Pottsville as it happens. The protesters are all gathered around an entirely empty building that they've heard might be close to getting potentially rented out by a company that rumor has it is going to be a running a massage parlor that could, quite possibly, be a front for sex work. Again, it's worth remembering that Asuka's background was in producing adult movies. There may be an element of biography to this particular bit of moral panic. <laughs> it's all a wonderful bit of social satire that perfectly encapsulates the attitude of Reagan's America, even if it never really connects back to the main plot. That said, the problem here is again Asuka, who responds to Buzzy's delightfully over-the-top impression of a blue-nosed busybody with Are you being a little stupid? It's flat and bland and thankfully saved by Martin Landau showing up to explain to the suddenly omnipresent TV cameras that he's just there in town to help sweep away Satan and all his works. Mort goes into the diner and warns Lori that something strange is going on in town and he doesn't want her going home alone. He offers to stop by at 7.30 when her shift ends to walk her to her car, grabbing her creepily in the process. Honestly, you could make the world's biggest supercut of men in movies who just grab and manhandle women with casual indifference difference in order to emphasize their points. Meanwhile, yes, again with the meanwhile, a group of kids prank local eccentric Marge Smith by throwing mud at her door from the bushes and calling her a witch. Marge is clearly accustomed to this kind of treatment, but she's got other things on her mind. Her son Michael is the child who went missing in the opening narration, although apparently something keeps visiting her in the middle of the night and leaving before she can get a good look at it. One of the single oddest things about this film is how utterly absent the payoff is to this subplot. It's very clear that Michael is the titular being mutated into a monster by radiation, but, well, not to spoil, but that is never going to be confirmed or utilized in the film's climax. It's just kind of used as background information. 
It's such a weird, almost goofy choice. We then get another fake-out, as the illegal fisherman gets once again arrested by Dudley. This one's also a bit of a cheat, unless Dudley's in the habit of growling loudly before he makes his busts. It takes place in daylight, so the monster can't be there, as we'll later find out. Later that night, though, we do get a very real monster moment, as Dudley lets a pretty young motorist off with a warning because she's white and flirtatious, before something hiding in the backseat of his patrol car puts its fist right through his chest and shows him his own still-beating heart in the moment before he dies. I gotta say, when this film does use gore, it does so very inventively, even though there are a lot of sequences that are just random fake-outs and off-screen monster attacks. The next morning, Kinky Friedman announces the disappearance of the officer, and Mort collects a sample of the slime found at the scene to be analyzed by Garson. The gunk is radioactive, although just within the threshold of not dangerously so. It's giving off 95 rads, which is certainly significant, but not a health risk according to the Department of Homeland Security. I have to believe that Kong picked that number deliberately after doing some research on the safe level of radiation, because it's so specifically under that threshold. Garson is questioned about all this by the news crew from yesterday, now a lot more skeptical, and Garson tries to get them to back off by feigning offense at their irresponsible reporting. He invites them to come along with him to the dump site that evening while he does some tests, an offer they take him up on. Sadly, this doesn't have much of a payoff either. If I had a single major complaint about the movie, it's that it doesn't really commit to the kind of rampage it promises with scenes like this. We should be foreshadowing a gory massacre of the entire news crew, but instead a lot of the time the story peters out into fake scares and anti-climaxes. Also, a word of advice to young filmmakers, do not name your scientist Dr. Jones, or people will react to every time their name is mentioned by saying, as you can see, there is nothing you can possess which I cannot take away. Back with the mayor and his wife, they're getting ready for a music recital being held at their home, and this whole sequence between these characters feels like a tribute to the mayor and his wife in The Music Man, the same moralistic smugness, the same high-nosed obsession with class and status, and as we'll see when we get the music number itself, the same horrific lack of taste. I don't know whether this is intentional or not, but as a fan of The Music Man, I like it either way. As night falls, Garson goes out to camp at the dump site accompanied by a live news crew, and Mort watches a little bit of it on TV before falling asleep. Again, not to say his character isn't absolutely electrifying, but... He has a weird, surreal, black-and-white dream where he and Garson are piloting a plane together when the monster attacks, and Garson is pulled out mere moments before Virginia Lane comes flying by on a broomstick, crying bloody tears and saying to Mort, it's all in your mind. Which is a surprisingly vivid and terrifying image for Ruth Buzzy. He wakes up from the dream to the sound of a ringing phone and realizes it's after 11 o'clock and he never picked up Lori. The call turns out to be from Garson, though, asking Mort to meet him at the dump site. Where the news crew is at this point is never explained. They simply vanish from the movie. And so Mort first goes to get Lori who is just now giving up on waiting for him at 11.45, a frankly astonishing amount of patience with his bullshit that he responds to by grabbing her arm again and lying about getting held up, before going to find out what Garson's discovered. But his plan is dashed when the creature leaps out at them, forcing them to retreat into the diner for safety. 
The diner turns out now to be very safe at all, though, and the monster soon breaks in. But Laurie traps it in the walk-in cooler, and Mort calls the mayor to get him to send someone to help kill it. The mayor instead comes himself with a pistol, only to find that the being has tunneled through the floor to escape. We get a very typical boy-who-cried-wolf scene here, with the mayor refusing to believe that the creature is anything to worry about, and berating Mort for wasting his valuable time and forcing him to leave his social event just to see a puddle of green goo. It's all a bit rote for a film like this, but Ferrer really sells it convincingly. Laurie and Mort then go to meet Garson at the dump, while outside the empty and as yet non-existent massage parlor, a trio of self-appointed moral guardians, led by Arne, who's played by Murray Langston, aka the Unknown Comic, who performed anti-comedy on The Gong Show back in the 70s with a paper bag on his head, and who has just sent a chunk of our audience spiraling down into a Proustian flashback of epic proportions, decide to go burn down the empty building. They enter, finding nothing but a couple of Playboy magazines, and then the monster finds them. All three men are dragged off and devoured off-screen, in the case of Arne, still clutching the Playboy he tried to sneak out with. As Marge wanders the dump site looking for Michael, and again, I will remind you that there will be absolutely no payoff to this subplot, the mayor goes back home just as the music recital begins with a caterwauling rendition of Beautiful Dreamer by a woman named Dorothy Otterson. Sadly uncredited. He pulls into the garage and sees the monster behind some boxes, and pulls right back out without even opening the garage door. His wife hears the commotion and goes out to see what the problem is, only to be strangled to death by the monster's slimy tongue. Really, the mayor should have gotten it too, but this is where he exits the film. Arriving at the dump, Laurie and Mort are met by Garson, who shows him the monster lair he found. He explains that it's getting around the city through a network of tunnels, and that it hides here during the day to devour its kills because it's light-sensitive. Garson suspects the creature might be intelligent, but no longer in its right mind due to the rapid process of mutation it's undergone. Just then, it comes back. Those tunnels must be really speeding it up, judging by the proximity of these three scenes, or else it's a much smaller town than it looks, and it tries to drag Garson away with its prehensile tongue. But Laurie chops it off with an improvised weapon, and they get back to the car just in time, and return to the police station. Garson and Mort then arm up for a confrontation with the monster, and lock Laurie in the jail cell for her own protection, because for all that this is a very 80s movie in a lot of ways, it's also a huge throwback to 50s creature features, and those tended to be chauvinist as all hell. When one of the deputies finally lets Lori out, she sees Marge wandering around looking for Michael and helps to walk her home. This feels like it should lead into the climax in the movie, where Lori learns the truth about the monster from Marge, and the two of them race to try to stop Garson and Mort from killing what's ultimately just a confused and frightened child, but nope, that doesn't happen. Lori learns that Michael is the monster and just sort of goes, huh, well that's a thing. Garson and Mort stake out the dump, but the creature attacks their car and they wind up driving away with it still clinging to the back. They leap out next to a nearby chemical warehouse and shoot the car to blow up the gas tank with the being still inside, then go to find a phone and call for backup. But the phones are dead, because this is apparently one of those warehouses that has no personnel, or security guards, or working telephones, or electricity, but plenty of bottles of sulfuric acid and canisters of cyanide gas, and a single cat who does not get off nearly as lucky as Jonesy and Alien. 
and they soon discover that the monster survived the crash and is hunting them. It first kills the cat, then dismembers Carson. Mort finds his body in pieces scattered across the warehouse floor, and decides to lock himself inside for a duel to the death. And about 30 seconds later, he realizes his mistake when the monster starts beating the crap out of him, clawing up his leg and effortlessly hurling him across the room. He tries to climb a skylight, but instead falls to the floor, stepping directly on a nail in the process that goes straight through his foot. It could safely be said that Mort has made some bad decisions here. Finding a gas mask, he opens up the canisters of cyanide gas. I don't think Kong really realizes how lethal cyanide actually is, because Mort would have gotten a fatal dose even before he put the mask on. The LD-50 for cyanide is about one milligram per kilogram of body weight, meaning that even a gram of the stuff would be instantly fatal to any human being. He tries to climb for the skylight again after releasing the gas, but loses his grip and falls back to ground level. Worse, the creature seems to be utterly immune to the deadly poison and knocks his gas mask off before clawing up his chest. This should have been followed by Mort immediately dropping dead, but luckily for him, he's blissfully ignorant of how fatal the gas he's breathing actually is. He instead finds a shelf of bottles of sulfuric acid and hurls them at the creature, injuring it enough to give him the chance to dismember it with an axe. After which it explodes, because why not, I guess? Mort then successfully climbs out through the skylight and throws his hat in the air in celebration in a shot that looks like it should have freeze-framed, but doesn't. So it's kind of inadvertently hilarious to see the hat just thump back onto the roof a second or two later. And as Kinky Friedman reports on another storm on its way and reassures listeners that Garson Jones has given the site a clean bill of health, posthumously, I guess? we see another set of claws emerging from the dirt, a sign that although the monster is gone, the danger remains. And that's it. Except it's not, because we then get a series of captions that tell us, Animal House style, what happened to everyone after the movie ended. The mayor's wife was never found. The remains of Garson Jones were donated to medical science by the mayor, who went on to become president. Lori moved to Akron, so presumably she was as sick of Mort's sexist bullshit as we were. Marge moved to Modesto to continue looking for her missing son, which is the oddest possible denouement to that weird subplot. And Mort went to Hollywood to become a stuntman. It is an unusual way to end the movie. But The Being is kind of an unusual movie. It's a first-time effort, made by someone who doesn't necessarily know what not to do, and that's both the source of its biggest problems and one of its most glowing charms. And will I hang on to this movie? I was tempted to say no, I'll admit. It's cute in its own weird little way, but it's also very scattered and doesn't pay off many of its more interesting threads. Plus Mort, who dominates the proceedings for the most part, is kind of the dullest aspect of it. Honestly, I'd rather have this as a Riff Tracks or an MST3K episode than a film by itself. But when I went to look for a way to recommend the film to people who don't necessarily have a physical copy available, I realized that this is a very hard movie to find. It's not streaming anywhere, except maybe as a bootleg rip on YouTube, and so if you want to see it, you have to own the DVD. And so even though it doesn't have subtitles, which is generally a deal-breaker for me, I'm going to hang on to it for now. Just in case. And if you want to talk about Reagan's America, Ruth Buzzy, or about anything else that came up on this podcast, you can find me on Twitter at, at HalfHorror, 
at least for the time being, and on Tumblr and Letterboxd as Half Price Horror. My watch list on Letterboxd contains everything I plan to tackle in future episodes. If there's something you'd like to hear about, let me know. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash halfpricehorror, and you can rate and review me on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else this podcast is found. And next time on Half Price Horror, as I said, after the curse of Michael Myers, we've taken that timeline as far as it can go. But there's still plenty more Halloween to get through, and as it turns out, reports of Laurie Strode's death have been greatly exaggerated although her brother is eager to change that as we dive into Halloween H2O 20 years later. See you then.